you will join me in Ephesians chapter 3. We continue in our series through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Our sermon this morning is entitled, The Gospel Mystery Revealed. We are in Ephesians chapter 3, and don't fall out of your seats, but we're looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. We are taking on a large chunk of scripture. Our key words for our worshipers in training are gospel, mystery, and Paul. Now, I don't know about you, but I love good storytelling, and especially when the story has a lot of unexpected uh, plot twists and turns and mystery involved. To me, the best fiction books and movies and stories are filled with outcomes that I least expected or that reveal scenarios that are are completely beyond anything I thought could happen. I like to enter into the story of someone who's an investigator or a lawyer trying to piece it all together like Sherlock Holmes. Uh, People like mystery. We like surprises. One of the joys of receiving a gift is the unexpected, the not knowing what's under the paper as it's being unwrapped. There's something fundamentally wrong with people who read the end of a book before they read all the other chapters leading up to it, or read a synopsis about a movie and how it ends before they watch it. It should be punishable by law to do such a thing. Part of the joy of it all is the mystery that comes with it. It's actually, that's, that's why, mystery is why uh, some of us enjoy uh, pranking people or watching people get pranked. There's a little known secret about my wife that's not about to be a secret anymore. That she loves watching videos on YouTube of people being scared by other people. And sometimes she laughs until she cries. But all of this is wrapped up in this idea of mystery. We love mystery. We love being surprised. And, and while we maybe don't enjoy being scared as we enjoy other people being scared for our entertainment, we do enjoy all of the mystery and surprise that comes with it. And if you stop and think about it, all kinds of things in our lives are filled with mystery. A lot of the things you find enjoyment in and pleasure in are based on mystery. And sometimes hidden within the mystery are some of the greatest things you will ever experience in all of life. And where we are in our text this morning, we're looking at this section where the Apostle Paul reminds the readers of the greatest news in all the world, the most significant news in all human history was at one point a mystery that was yet to be revealed. It was a mystery that we could find clues to. It was a mystery that was really there all along in plain sight. But until you're given the end, until you know what happens, until you read the final chapter, you can't figure it out. There's no way to know. And as you read through the Old Testament, we have these little breadcrumbs, this trail that leads you toward the revealing of this mystery. And once you know it, you look back and you say, of course, of course it was there all along. And I'd encourage you to read 
the Old Testament that way, with that in mind, as you're working through the Old Testament, you read it as an investigator, looking at all of the clues and all the ways the text is pointing to Christ and all the ways the gospel is being revealed. And it's easy for us to look at the people in Jesus' day who didn't get it and just couldn't figure it out and realize the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and he's been promised all along. And we look at them and we say, how silly, how dense, how dull are they? But if God hadn't pointed it out to us in his word by revealing it to us in his word, we wouldn't have figured it out either. Paul is pointing out to to us this morning that without God revealing it to us completely as it played out, we would never know the truth hidden behind all of the mystery. And so as we pick up this morning in Ephesians 3, Paul is going to reveal to us the gospel mystery. If you're using the blue ESV Bible, our text this morning is on page 977. And we're taking a larger section than we have. uh, And we're looking at each of the individual parts this morning as as it's all going on. And there's a reason why we're keeping all of this together. And I will say this, this is one of only a few places in the Bible that I know of that we read and we can think in terms of grammar and style that admittedly it's a bit clunky, it's a bit awkward. Now, wow, we fully and emphatically affirm the Bible is infallible, the Bible is inerrant, it is without any error whatsoever, it is without any contradictions, it is completely unable to contain error in terms of what it teaches regarding God and the work of God throughout redemptive history. What we are not saying is that it's always written in the most eloquent manner or with the greatest literary finesse. Paul probably wouldn't have gotten a great grade in an English class for some of what is written here, or a Greek class, I guess I should say. (coughs) Now remember, the Bible is written by holy men carried along by the Holy Spirit according to their own style and structure, and yet the things they wrote did not contain error. They weren't contradicting anything God had revealed and inspired previously or in writings that followed. But it's not the easiest thing in the world to read in this section. So I remind us of this to say that what we're looking at this morning is sort of a parenthesis in what Paul is writing. We'll look at verse 1 and then we will realize that what he starts to say in verse 1 doesn't actually pick up again until verse 14. So verses 2 through 13 are a parenthesis. And he, he, get, he sort of gets through saying one thing in verse 1, and then he pauses and says something else for 11 verses until he comes back. So he sort of starts to talk, and he stops, and he says, well, hold on real quick. Before we get to that, let me say this over here. And some of you know people who tell stories like that, and you just want to say, get on with it. But this is where Paul is This morning, and in this case, he's starting in verse 1 to tell the Ephesians that he's praying for them in a very specific way. And you understand that from how he addresses the situation in verse 14. But he doesn't quite get to that in verse 1. So let's begin Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to look first at verse 1. Paul writes, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you, 
Gentiles. Now, it is good for us to remember that the Bible was not written with chapter breaks and verses. So sometimes we get to a location and have to be reminded that this letter was written with a continuous flow of thought. So the beginning of verse 1, Paul says, for this reason. And he's referring specifically to all that he has written in the previous section. Specifically, he's referencing his teaching about the incredible truth which has come to light in the gospel of Jesus Christ that the Gentiles who have believed the gospel have been grafted into the one body of Christ with the Jews as the church, the household of God. And these Ephesians, who were Gentiles, were previously dead in their transgressions and sins. They were separated from Christ. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope, without God in the world. But they have been made alive together with Christ by grace, through faith, apart from works of the law, that they might walk in the good works which had been prepared beforehand that they should walk in them. This is a summary of all that Paul has discussed in chapter 2. And then remember, he expounded on the fact that as a result of God's regenerating work to make new men and women in Jesus Christ, we are now fellow citizens. We together are members of the household of God as children of God, and it's all built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. And we are being made into a holy temple of the Lord to dwell within by the Holy Spirit. So any hostilities, any divisions, any of these things are broken down in Christ between God and man and among the people of God. And there ought to be a reflection of this in the church's unity and peace because we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now in chapter 3, Paul says, for this reason, as a result of all of these things, and then he's not actually going to get back to it until verse 14. So you see how that's a bit awkward. He builds anticipation and says, but wait, I have something else first. But very quickly in verse 1, we do get more insight into Paul's situation here that he hasn't given us up until this point in the letter. He tells us that he is a prisoner. Now, prior to his writing this letter, Paul was in Jerusalem, and while he was there, he had spent most of his time with a Gentile man named Trophimus, who was himself actually an Ephesian. Now, Paul and Trophimus spent so much time together that the people thought that Paul had taken this Gentile into the forbidden inner courts of the temple with, he, with himself um, as he went into the temple. And so there was this controversy, and as a result of the controversy, there was a massive riot, and as a result of the riot, Paul was arrested and Paul was imprisoned. And this is what began a series of things that led to Paul ultimately being put in prison in Rome from where he's writing to the Ephesians. So that was the situation that landed him in prison. But before we get to our first main point, I just want to make mention of something from verse 1. Notice, it took until the end of the first two chapters 
for us to even know what Paul's circumstances are. And even then, it's just this quick passing statement that he makes. Paul's not bitter. He's not resentful. He's just matter-of-factly saying, I'm a prisoner for Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. He was arrested by the Romans. And the terms for his even being in prison were very unfair. And all that he had gone through was very difficult, was very trying. But he never doubted the fact that God was behind all of it. Everything was working according to God's purposes. He believed completely and totally in the sovereignty of God, so much so that even while he is in prison, he says ultimately it's because the Lord Jesus Christ wanted it that way. Notice he calls himself not a prisoner of the Romans. He says, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Paul is a prisoner not for man. And not because of man's plans and man's ill will toward him. He's a prisoner for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not some abstract concept for Paul. It's how he lived his life. Humanly speaking, it was very trying. Humanly speaking, you would look at a situation and say it looks like a tragedy. But there are no accidents. Everything is part of God's divine plan. And this should be very instructive for us when it comes to our contentment with our circumstances. Listen, as we labor in God's kingdom, there is no escaping the reality of what's before us. When God pulls us into his work, we are going to face trials, we are going to face persecution, we are going to face distress and even suffering for his namesake. It will cost us if we are to be faithful to God. It will cost us financially. It may cost us physically. It will certainly be very emotionally draining. There is a cost associated with belonging to Jesus Christ and participating in his work as his people. And the things God calls us to, so often they require us to give of ourselves, our time, our money, our energy, our emotional investment. But God is calling us in the midst of all of that to be content, to not grumble, to not complain, to constantly live to the advantage of others, to die to ourselves, and to trust that God is in complete and total control. And I get the sense that from Paul that he learned what this should look like in his own personal life. He learned what being content and thankful for all that he had, regardless of his personal circumstances, meant. And he was aware of why this was of greatest value. So, we get some insight here into Paul's circumstances. And he reminds the Gentiles that his primary focus in life, from when the Lord saved him until his dying breath, was to serve them specifically. And he's zealous for them to know and believe the truth and to trust in Christ and to find hope and assurance in all that is right and true about God as they sought to live in communion with him. So he's about to pray for them specifically. Gentiles, I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm doing all of this for you and I'm going to pray for you. But first, let me say a few other things. 
And so our first main point this morning from verses 2 through 6 is that God has made known what was once a mystery in Jesus Christ and in the Bible. Look beginning in verse 2. In which, uh, excuse me, that's chapter 2. In chapter 3, he says in verse 2, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now here is where Paul reveals the reality of the mystery to us. When the Bible speaks of mystery, it is most often dealing with something that was previously unknown but has now been made known because God has revealed it to us. And so Paul tells us, look, there was a mystery about Christ. There was a mystery about the gospel and what he's doing in the midst of all of this. But God has revealed it to us, to all of us, both Jew and Gentile. God has made himself known. God has made known his plan for human history. God has revealed himself by coming to us. As Jesus Christ, God has made his plan known by dying for our sins. For his people, taking away the sin barrier that separated the people of God from him. And so he has broken down in Jesus Christ all of the distinctions that we make. All of the distinctions that, between race and, and class and gender and socioeconomic status and job and house. And whether or not you homeschool or eat organic food or work out or eat chocolate or watch football for some reason. Paul is declaring we do not judge based on those distinctions. They have been eradicated as ways in which we separate from one another. Because Christ has come and Christ has changed the way we interact with one another and how we interact with him. And that mystery was revealed. And so now we recognize that there's no longer a need for self-righteousness. There's no longer a need for men and women to be at odds or white against black and black against white and young against old and rich against poor and poor against rich. Listen, it is God against sin for his people and that is all. The revealing of God's mystery has made known in Christ that God is making for himself an everlasting family called the church. And we are to love one another as brothers and sisters. And we invest ourselves in one another's lives with the grace that God has enabled us. We care about each other. We function as a new people and a new society and a new kingdom with a new king. And he says that this mystery was once unknown. For so long, mankind did not understand or comprehend this, but God has made it known in Jesus Christ. 
And you know, so often today, in so many ways, the questions people ask and try to answer through all of their various religious, uh, religious ideas and political ideologies and philosophical musings, they're all trying to probe into and figure out the very thing that God has said he has revealed in the mystery. We know that the Bible answers all of the questions we might have. But we also know that unless God reveals it to us, there's no way for us to know. The Bible is the only book that will answer all of the philosophical questions we might have. And yet, for most of redemptive history, most of those questions seem shrouded in enigma. So much was hidden in the Old Testament, even as God revealed little pieces along the way. For example, God called Israel his firstborn son. How could Israel have known he was speaking of his eternal son and that they were reflecting something of that which was revealing him? Or how could Israel have known that the serpent on the pole was pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, lifted up and crucified, and whoever looked at the serpent would be healed, whoever looks to Christ will live forever. Or how could Israel have known that the water from the rock was pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ? Or how could they have known that the Passover lamb was this magnificent type of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? How could anyone know, reading just the Old Testament revelation in the time of the Old Testament revelation, the depths of what God was truly revealing as he breathed out the scriptures and as his people were starting to learn and understand him? Brothers and sisters, we live on this side of the cross and on this side of the completion of scripture being written, and as a result, we have the greatest privilege in the history of all mankind of knowing the fullness of what God has revealed. We ought to be tremendously thankful that we're not in the dark or that we're not trying to figure things out, but it's all shrouded in mystery because the mystery of Christ and the mystery of the gospel has been revealed to us. How? How has the mystery been revealed? He tells us in verse 5, his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And we understand that to mean, as we looked at last week, it's made known to us by the Word of God in the Bible, the Old and New Testaments. God breathed out his Word through the apostles, through the prophets, carrying them along to write down the words of the Bible. So the main thing Paul is pointing out here is that God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ And God has revealed himself in the Bible, and so we're able to share in and to participate in God's work as God's people. And isn't it a wonderful blessing that you and I don't have to speculate? We don't have to guess and to wonder what God is doing and what God requires of us. My goodness, I have a hard enough time knowing what it says, actually walking in it, trying to figure it out along the way. We are blessed, brethren. We have revelation. We have God's word. We know what God calls us to, what he expects of us, and what he has done for us. He has made it known to us. God has revealed the mystery. God has revealed the plan. 
And so the question remains, what, as a result of this, does he require of us? We see that, secondly, this morning in verses 7 through 10. The church's mission is to make known the manifold wisdom of God. Look at verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now the Apostle Paul didn't just wake up one day and decide it was time to do something about the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul didn't make himself a minister of the gospel. Paul was what he was by the grace of God alone. And even then, He called himself the least of the saints. And the God who called and appointed him also equipped him. Paul tells us, uh, he tells the Ephesians in verse 7 that he is sent out by the working of God's power. They had already seen Paul's ministry. They knew it was true. They were witness to how powerful it was because many of them had already been converted through all of it. The apostle to the Gentiles was accompanied by the very power of the God who had sent him to do the work. Now, one of the ways you can identify a mystery, a a ministry that is accompanied by the power of God is when you see conversion of the lost and when you see growth of believers in sanctification. When you see people who are being saved and becoming new creations in Jesus Christ, and when you see people who are new creations in Christ looking more and more like Christ, you can be certain that the power of God is at work. One of the things I love so much about our church, and I've said this many times, is that we are, by and large, a church of first-generation Christians. Most of us, not all of us, but most of us were not raised in Christian homes. We weren't raised learning the Bible. We weren't raised hearing the gospel. And so one of the things I love that we do is trying to share everyone's stories because we hear time and time and time again how the ministry of God's church and the ministry of God's word is accompanied by his power to bring about new life. And you know that story for yourself. You know it for many of us who have, are, are here this morning. We know that the Word of God and the Holy Spirit are at work. And the Word of God and the Holy Spirit are indissolubly united together and they work in power. And when the powerful work comes into the life of a person, the results are incredible and they are undeniably beautiful. That was evident in Paul's ministry and that ought to be evident in our ministry or else we just need to hang it up. Apart from the power of God at work, we have nothing to offer. But as long as we stay faithful to his word, we can be assured that it will be accompanied by his spirit 
And so he calls us to persevere and to be faithful. And he will do the rest. And here's the thing. There are people in our lives, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, the people who serve us in stores and restaurants and in the community, people who still don't know that the mystery has been revealed. They go about their day. Maybe this is you. Going about the day, wondering where to find peace, wondering what life is all about, wondering what it means, how it's all supposed to be lived, why things are the way they are. And sure, they may be able to describe who they think Jesus was and is and what he has done and what the church is and what God's revealed in the Bible about a few things. But in the end, in terms of having to do with anything in their day-to-day life, Jesus is still a big mystery to them. The gospel is still a big mystery to them. And so the church has the responsibility. The church has the calling to make this known to the world. Listen, we know the biggest killer of mankind in the world is not some flesh-eating bacteria or nuclear warfare or heart disease or cancer. The biggest killer in all of mankind in this world is sin. But here's the thing. We have the cure. And so how much does the church have to hate people to not tell the world, we have the remedy for your sin? It's a mystery to you, but we can tell it to you and we can offer you the cure. Friend, if you are not a Christian, I'm telling you today, you will search all around for all the answers to all of your questions that you don't even know you're looking for. You're going to look in college classrooms and textbooks and philosophical articulations and political structures and on and on and on. But the answer to everything rests right here. Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead. The mystery has been revealed. And God calls you to turn to him by faith. To confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Everyone who believes in Christ will not be put to shame. That's the promise of God's word. And for you who are Christians, we ought to be longing that those who are far off from God would hear and know and believe the mystery that we make known to them. That they would become a part of God's plan for human history in being his people. Look at verse 9. This is the mission of the church. To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So Paul's commission is our commission as the church to proclaim everything that there is to say about Christ. Jesus himself was sending Paul to preach to the Gentiles. And Jesus himself is calling his church to fulfill his plans. He wants everybody to know about the mystery. He wants everybody to know about the riches and wisdom And all that is hidden in God himself. And having revealed the mystery, God wants the world to hear about it through his people, through the church. 
And where men and women are right with God through Christ, they are right with each other. And we see the beauty of the church working out these things so that they're more and more and more able to reveal all that was once hidden. Unconverted people in this world may learn to coexist peacefully with one another. They might even enjoy each other's company every now and then, but they know nothing of what the church is. They know nothing of true fellowship, where people stand on the same footing and enjoy the same rights and privileges and responsibilities as children of God. It is not just that our distinctions are tolerated or put aside. It's that our distinctions don't even exist because the only distinction is whether or not we are in Christ. And when we are in Christ, we are united, loving one another, loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself. This is the manifold wisdom of God to be made known to the world. And is there any question that this sad world needs such a message? But look at this in verse 10. It's not just the world that needs the manifold wisdom of God through the church. It is also the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So the angels, the demons, the divine counsel, the supernatural beings created by God, all observing and scrutinizing what goes on in this world. And this is fascinating. Paul tells us here that one of the reasons the gospel goes forth from the church is to teach them something as they look at the Christian church on earth. They are learning something. And learning it, they have an even greater and fuller understanding of the manifold wisdom of God. And so yet again, we are reminded that God is so glorious and so beautiful and so powerful and so incomprehensible that even those beings that have been with God since the beginning of creation and have observed so much of God's work throughout history, even they have only scratched the surface of knowing what can be known of God in his infinite wisdom and his wonderful ways. Brothers and sisters, in God's word and in our salvation, we have a gift that supernatural beings will never experience. No ruler or authority in heaven will ever sing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Because there's nothing of that which is true for them. But it is for us. And you know, the Bible says that angels long to know something of this, but they don't. And they look over all the earth, they see the church. And in that church, they see Jewish and Gentile believers redeemed in exactly the same way, called by one gospel, enjoying identical privileges. And they've been surveying the world through all human history, but nothing like this existed before the cross of Christ. And there is nothing else like it in all the rest of the universe. And so the gospel message brings us and brings them to see all of the facets of God's wisdom here, which we never even imagined could have existed. And so God's aim in history is to display his wisdom and his grace in the way that he saves the church by saving the ungodly from all the nations by faith alone on the basis of Christ alone. 
And the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places love to stoop down and to get as close as they can to the wonder of redemption, how God has prepared and saved and gathered the church. That's a beautiful thing to reflect on. Brothers and sisters, we are the most privileged people in all of the world. We're the most privileged of all of God's creation. And as true as all of this is, we must not forget. Paul is writing all of this from a cell in prison. And the work is not easy. So just before he gets back to identifying what he's going to pray for, Paul reminds us of this very important truth in our final point this morning. He says, do not lose heart. God's plan will be fulfilled. Look at verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Listen, nobody wants to go to prison, I don't think. If so, there's a problem. It's not something we sit around hoping for. But here's the truth as it pertains to the people of God. Some of the greatest works for Christians in the history of the world weren't written by someone sitting in a nice leather chair behind a mahogany desk. They were written in prison. Several of Paul's letters were written from prison. The second best-selling book in the history of the world, only second to the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, it was written from prison. Other great men of the faith have produced wonderful, life-giving truth from prison. Great women of the faith have written wonderful things for the church from prison. And it's no mistake that those two things are related So often, the difficulties of life as a Christian in this world are the very things that God uses to fulfill his purpose to make his mystery known. He sanctifies us through the crucible, and he gives us a glimpse into his manifold wisdom that can be passed on to others. So no matter what we want to think or no matter what we really hope for, in the end... We have to know that doing what God calls us to do as the church will bring affliction. And it will bring affliction because he wants it to. So that we will be sanctified. So that we will be all the more able to do what he calls us to do as his church. It may cost your family, your friends, your job, your freedom. But Paul's hope was, and ours ought to be, that people would love Jesus and that they would partake as members of the household of God of all that God has given his children, of the riches of his storehouse in the heavenly places, regardless of what it means for our lives. God has a plan, and that plan is just as eternal as he is. And at the center of his plan is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so certain is the fulfillment of God's purpose that Paul can talk about it like it has already been accomplished. God's plan is to bring home to the fold all of his sheep as they hear his voice. And there are various kinds of sheep, but they all hear the same voice and they are all part of one flock under one shepherd, which is the mystery that Paul has been preaching about. 
And as we proclaim this message, we work to fulfill the mission of the church. As God has given it to us, we do so, verse 12, with boldness and access, with confidence through our faith in him. So it's not only those whose confidence in the sovereignty of God that could be admonished not to lose heart or grow discouraged in the Apostle Paul's being imprisoned for the faith. It's, it's, it's not a delightful thing. It's, it's a scary thing. It's probably something that would cause us all great fear, thinking we might one day have to go to prison for our faith. So Paul wants to encourage us, and he says, don't faint at these tribulations. Don't faint in your own. Press on. Persevere. Don't lose heart. The Lord's plan is perfect. The Lord's plan will be fulfilled. And Paul even says at the end of verse 13 that all that he is endured is to their glory. He was proving himself faithful through trials just as Jesus has done. And God was well pleased with Paul just as he is well pleased with his son because Paul was showing forth the sufferings of Christ. And all of this is a part of his plan which is unfolding day by day. So often we can be terribly discouraged by our circumstances We can be beat down and feel so low and so helpless and so bruised by the circumstances of life that we encounter. But Paul is telling us that kind of attitude, that kind of heart is completely inconsistent with the bold confession of God as sovereign and with Christ as the one who is reigning and ruling as the Lord of all creation. He's able to see his suffering from a heavenly perspective and to delight in all that God is doing. From an earthly perspective, his circumstances, surely we would say, are hindering his ministry, endangering his life, and spoiling his reputation. But you know what? Here we are, 2,000 years later, reading the very letter he wrote. It's instructing us. It's changing us. It's informing us. It's making us to be more like Christ. I think we could say... By no means was his ministry hindered. It was enhanced. It was made all the more useful for the church. In June of 2002, a lot of you will remember this, a group of coal miners made national headlines during a 72-hour ordeal to rescue them from a flooded underground mine in western Pennsylvania. And when they emerged from the mine, restaurants and gas stations had uh, signs and everything that said, Nine Alive, Prayers Answered. It was a time of celebration, of course, for their spouses, uh, for their friends, and for their families. But there were days of even greater glory ahead when the story of what happened in the darkness underground began to emerge. When the water became, be, began to come in on all of the men, they rushed for escape. But when they recognized that their path was closed off, they saved the others by shouting ahead to those who were coming down on a shift change to run away because of the rising water. They didn't want them to come into it as well. And after that heroism, these, these trapped nine began their finest hours of glory. Everything that they had was to be shared among them. A sandwich and a soda they had. One sandwich, one soda, and they shared that among the nine. They huddled together to share their body heat. They, they took turns uh, sharing the little piece of dry space above the water so they could dry off for a few moments. 
They tied themselves together with a rope they found to keep anyone from floating off if they went off to sleep. They bound themselves one to another with the commitment that they would live or die together. And when the outside learned that all of this had happened, we all said, this is glorious. Each of these men was willing to give his life to save the lives of others, those that the worst of circumstances had brought together. And what does Paul show us? Our calling has many similar attributes if it is genuine. We, for no merit of our own, are willing to die to self and to live to the advantage of others. We vow to share with others everything that we have in Christ. We do this not knowing the circumstances or cultures into which we will be thrown, but committing our own lives to saving others, even when it may come at the greatest hurt to ourselves to do so. And we wrap our arms around those who may, by their own selfishness and neediness, take life from us. Why would we do such things? Because we are aware of the watching world and the heavenly hosts give glory to God when they observe the church exhibiting such grace and making the mystery of the gospel known that they might see and behold the innumerable riches of Christ forever and ever. That's what we are called to be and do so that the world may know the mystery of the gospel that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that by your word, through your apostles and prophets, you have made known to us the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the gospel. We thank you, Father, that we know this truth and that you have called us to proclaim it far and wide to all of the world, to make known the manifold wisdom of God. And we pray, God, that no matter what circumstances that brings us into, no matter the fearful situations we're brought to, the, the people we encounter, the, the cultures we find ourselves in, whatever comes as a result of our proclaiming far and wide that Jesus Christ is King, help us <coughs> to not grow weary, to not grow faint, but to continue the charge to continue to faithfully move forward as the people of God, proclaiming far and wide that Jesus is King. And we pray, God, that you would accompany all of our labors with your power, with the power of your Spirit, to bring new life to those who are dead in transgressions and sins, and to continually, day by day, make your people more and more like Jesus Christ. And we ask all of these things for your glory and for the good of your church, that we might be faithful to you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.